my guess is you're coming in the room and uh, I know when you have a room this size and all the amount of people that kind of come through, whether it's, for, you know, all throughout the years and, and seasons, and right now there's so many different stories in this room. But there's one thing that I know that is absolutely true about every single one of you and every single one of us at some point, is that we find ourselves at one point in our lives sitting in a mess. Whether it's a mess of decisions we've made that's led us to a certain point, or maybe some other people outside of you have made decisions that's placed you in a mess, like you're, you've been hurt and the victim of that, or maybe you've actually been on the other side of that. Decisions you've made have created a mess in your relationship or your career, or you would even say, hey, how would actually, like the language I would use to describe my heart is it feels messy. Sometimes they would say it feels like death. And here's one of the things I know. Oftentimes in life, when we learn the deepest and most meaningful messes is when we're actually at the bottom in a mess. We learn the most beautiful lessons, the most transformative message when we're actually sitting in a mess. You guys know this to be true? It's, it's funny, I was, uh, I, one of my friend, friends actually right now is in rehab and I've been walking uh, with him for a handful of months now off and on and it was, it was really interesting. We were talking about Jesus, you know, the beauty of, uh, of him as Lord, his kingdom, uh, the salvation and grace that he experiences uh, and that he gives us. And it's funny, in, in the season that he was in, he couldn't really hear any of it. It just kind of bounced off his heart. And then literally, I got to a point where I got a call from him and he's like, I'm on the side of the road, out of gas, out of money, drunk. I need help. So I, I go, I pick him up, we have tons of conversation. He ends up agreeing to go into rehab, praise God. And he's in rehab and he's probably been there a month and then he reached out and called me and he's like, he's like, hey Corey, I was like, hey buddy, how you doing? And he's like, dude, I'm doing so well. I'm so thankful I decided to take, make this decision to go into rehab. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm super proud of you. That was the best thing that you can do. And it was interesting, he goes, you know what's just so interesting? He's like, I feel like I'm experiencing Jesus in a way that I never have before. And he goes, I'm devouring the Bible. And then he goes, because I gave him this book called Gentle and Lowly, which is like Christ's love for sinners and sufferers. And he's like, I just feel like I can't even believe this is true. He's like, I'm praying to God. I'm devouring his word. I just want Jesus. And then I was thinking about it, and I was like, yeah, that's how it is. When we're in places of desperation and distress, all of a sudden something really beautiful happens. And that's what we're going to kind of see in Jonah chapter 2 tonight. We're going to see Jonah, uh, he's at the bottom, like literally in the story, like he's at the, like the farthest down that you could go. He's at the bottom of the sea, and it's a beautiful picture of where he, has, where he is in his heart. He's literally at the bottom, he's in desperation, and what we actually find in Jonah chapter 2 is that not only is Jonah at the bottom, but he's, he's praying at the bottom. And what we're going to see in this chapter is we're going to see uh, what Jonah's desperation actually turns him into and where desperation can lead in our lives when we find ourselves in a place of distress. We're going to see in our desperation and when we're at the bottom, whatever that, me, that might be, we're going to see how our heart actually begins to change and transform. Uh, and then we're going to see that even at the most bottom, lowest of places, that our hearts can still be cluttered. And they can still be tangled up with our sin, and, and Joe is gonna sh show us all that. And so Jonah chapter two, let me give you a little bit of a summary if you're new here. Jonah is a prophet, he's a prophet of Israel, 
And God says, hey, I want you to go to the Ninevites and I want you to show and proclaim God's grace, my grace to your enemies. And so Jonah was like, that sounds great. I'll go the opposite direction. And so Jonah literally runs the opposite direction. He's supposed to go like 500 miles this way to Nineveh, and then he goes literally 2,500 miles the opposite way to Tarshish. He takes a boat, and he's like running away from God. He's on this boat. God sends a storm. Things get crazy, and Jonah becomes even more like apathetic and like he has this like spiritual slumber, which is always how it goes when you run away from God's call in your life. It always creates some sort of slumber and apathy. And then literally at like the bottomest of lows, when you think Jonah's gonna turn, he doesn't. He goes, hey guys, um, like I know the storm, like I know why it's here, it's because of me. You can throw me into the sea and it'll grow calm. And it looks heroic, but then you see Jonah is just finding the surest way to get out of God's will and God's call on his life. And so he literally gets hurled into the ocean and he's just sinking, sinking, sinking to what seems his death. And then we're gonna pick up in Jonah chapter one, verse, verse 17, if you have your Bible. And then I'm also gonna be in the NIV translation if you have your phone. Jonah 1.17 says this. So, so Jonah's sinking, sinking, sinking. And it says, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. All right, so this is like, if you're new to Christianity, you're like, this is, you guys are weird. You believe in fishes swallowing people, and uh, I'm not about that. But here, I just wanna say this. If you have an issue with the fish, or like you wanna hear like my thoughts about it, and work through it, let's chat after, but this is not about a fish. This is about what's actually happening in the story. But so Jonah's sinking to, the, to his death. So God provides this huge fish. It swallows Jonah, and he doesn't send a fish to swallow Jonah to punish Jonah. He sends a fish to rescue Jonah, which I think is very like, simple, and I, we're gonna move on past this verse, but I wanna make this point. God's rescue of us in our lives often begins with death. God's rescue in our lives often begins with death, and what God does is he takes vehicles of death and then he turns them into vehicles of life. Does that make sense? So Jonah's sinking, he gets swallowed. Let's be honest, who lives in a fish for three days without dying? And God actually turns this horrific situation where Jonah's running and God swallows him up in what seems like death, but ends up actually bringing him out into life. And so here's the point I wanna make where it's just briefly, before we kind of move on, I wanna apply this to our lives. But I think it's really important, and Aiden, you can put this on the screen. This is the first lesson that I think we see. You can't have resurrection life without following Jesus into the grave. You can't have resurrection life without following Jesus into the grave. And so I picture Jonah, why does Jonah jump off the boat? Why does he go into the seas? I really think he wants life. He wants what will make him happy. He wants what will make him satisfied. He's looking for life but God has to take him through the grave before he can get resurrection life. And I think this is really important because so often in our lives, we go, I just want life. Think about every decision you even made today or in the last week. What are you chasing? Life, happiness, fulfillment. And God knows sometimes we think that we can like go and get it some other way and we're trying to go and get it some other way and what oftentimes the mess that you're sitting in tonight, whatever it may be, that actually might be the vehicle that God is using to bring you into resurrection life. Does that make sense? Sometimes God actually has to take us there himself and sometimes Jesus is calling you into obedience and you might actually have to choose the grave before you get life. So the first thing that we see is that you can't have resurrection life without following Jesus 
uh, into the grave. And so then we move into Jonah's prayer. Look at, uh, with me at verse, uh, chapter two, verse one. It says, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and then in verse one it says, from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So Jonah's in the fish, and he's like, all right, I gotta have a quiet time. So he, I don't even know how this works, but literally he's, he's in the fish, he's all slimy with fish stuff and fish breath, and, uh, and then in verse two it says, he says, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. Notice he says, in distress I called, and he answers. And then it says, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now listen, this is not Jonah being like, hey, things have gotten pretty bad. I'm just gonna go over here and have like a quick powwow with God and pray. Like, Jonah is in absolute desperation. What's interesting, this is the first time in the story that Jonah actually ever prays. And when does he pray? when he's in desperation and distress. And, it's, and, and if you've been in this situation, you know that when you find yourself in this situation, when, like think about when you're like truly distressed, when you're truly in desperation. Those are the times that we, that we it feels ugly, but it's truly beautiful. And here's why, it feels ugly because we, fe- we feel far from God, is that not true? In distress, in desperation, that's when like, where God, where are you? And it feels, it feels ugly but it's truly really beautiful because you're actually probably to the closest place that you can be to actually start experiencing God's grace in your life. Um, I, I wrote this down and I thought I'd share it with you. Often, complete failure, in Jonah's case, God has to let him get to a place of complete failure. Often, complete failure is what opens up our hearts to receive from God what is most needed for complete transformation in our lives. I want to say that again. Sometimes in our, in our lives, God will allow us to get to a place where complete failure is what actually opens up our heart to receive from God what is most needed for complete transformation in our lives. I have a friend named Enoch. He's uh, an African man from uh, Malawi. And uh, I was actually having lunch with him today, and Jade and Kira actually jumped in at the end, which was super fun. And I was just, uh, I was talking with, with Enoch and the gal sitting there, and I was like, I just gotta be honest. Uh, in my life, like, I, it's so hard for me to get to a place of desperation before God. Like, I'm trying to do this little thing with God every day, and if you guys are already excelling at this, like, I'm very proud of you. Pray for me. But I literally am trying to do this thing every day where I get up and the first thing that I do is get on my knees before God and just lay out my day before him and just say, Lord, I need you today. It is like, I get up out of bed and I'm like, but I gotta get coffee. I gotta, you know, I got that, that work thing. I, like, I literally just go into this like mode of like, I can just do my day. I can just do the things that I need to do. I don't need God. And like actually sitting in God's presence on my knees is so hard. And so I remember asking him, I was like, Enoch, I was like, what? Because this guy prays, I mean, you guys just, I'll just take you into a prayer session with Enoch and he'll just light up your world. But I was like, dude, you're different. And I told him, I was like, you're just a different, you got different sauce. You're just made up of a different thing than me. I was like, what, what, what is it with you? And I said, I said, shoot me straight. Like, shoot me straight. Like, what's the difference between you and, like, me and the people that I represent? And he, you know, he's all, like, because he's so kind and compassionate. I was like, no, you, like, you have to tell me. And he says, you guys don't live out of desperation for God. 
And he goes, I don't think it's even a conscious thing. I don't think you're like actively trying to be prideful like towards God. He's like, but you just wake up and you just live. You wake up, you check your phone. You know, if you go into the grocery store and there's no toilet paper, it's like a frenzy. You just, like, you expect there to be food on the shelves. And he's like, where I come from, he's like, our environment tells us all the time that God is our provision every single day. And he goes, you guys are, he goes, you're dependent upon God and desperate when you feel it. He goes, but whether you feel it or not, it's always the same regardless. And he goes, that's the difference between my culture and your culture, the Christians in Africa versus the Christians here. And I was like, that's truly beautiful. And it's true. When do, our, when do our hearts start to open up towards God? And we go, okay, God, what do you want to do? When distress hits. And then we try to get rid of our distress, but we shouldn't because distress leads to desperation. And desperation actually starts to loosen our grasp on our life. And we go, okay, God, what do you want to do? And then the beauty happens. Is that not true? And so we, what we see here in this passage is what is God doing while Jonah is crying out? Three times it says, he answered and he listened. God is listening to you and he's answering you. And we're gonna see as this kind of carries on what, uh, what Jonah has to say. So Jonah two, uh, and then look at verse three. So he goes, all right, in my distress, I called out and you heard me, you listened to my cry. And then he starts to acknowledge the situation that he's actually in, who is responsible for it. He says, listen, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves, and he's talking about God here, and breakers swept over me. So Jonah is in complete distress. He's panicking, but he's acknowledging that God is the one who sent the distress. Now, this is the tough thing. And this is what's called the severe, like a lot of people that I've listened to kind of talk about Jonah, they talk about God's severe mercies, where God is so merciful, but sometimes to get our heart's attention and to get a hold of our lives, he does it in what seems like severe ways. And so Jonah says, you hurled me into the waves. You, you hurled me into the seas. Well, what's interesting, who hurled Jonah into the seas in the story? Do you remember? The sailors. So who hurled Jonah into the seas. The sailors are God. See, what Jonah goes, he goes, I see what's happening on a human level. He goes, God, I know you're the one who sent me into the sea. Um, I have a daughter, and uh, I think this point kind of illustrates the, uh, what, I, what I'm trying to get at. So we're bottle feeding her right now, and uh, it's super cute and super fun, except that my daughter really likes her food, and when you take it away from her, it's like a complete, it's chaos, like literally deafening chaos. So I'm feeding my bottle, like my bottle to my daughter, literally this morning, and I'm like, I'm, like, I'm holding her, you know, I'm like, God, this is the greatest thing in the world, I'm so thankful. And so my daughter's actually had these, this issue where she like spits up more than she should, and it was like, we had to go to the doctor about it. And so halfway through the feed, we have to remove the bottle for her so that we can burp her to get the air out, to get her healthy enough to, to, to receive more. So I'll feed her three ounces of milk, and then literally what I do, the minute I go boop, I take what she wants away, I put it on the side, literally you just see panic in her eyes, and she, like, her eyes get this big, and she just screams. She's five months old, veins popping out of her head. I'm like, 
did you get those from me or mom? Like, oh my gosh, like that's insane. So she's screaming, literally, like it's worth five seconds of tears pouring down her face and she's just, and this, so then she's on my shoulder because I'm burping her and I'm like, I know baby, just like give me like 30 seconds, okay? This is what she does. She literally, she turns her head, she sees the bottle and then she starts to reach out her arm. And she's, she's just saying, I need that right now, but it's, it's not good for her at the moment. And I think that's what God does when I talk about, that's a good illustration of what I talk about God's severe mercy, is there's good things that are gifts that God gives us. But there's times where those good things become ultimate things, and we can't live without it without throwing a fit. And God in his love says, I'm going to take that bottle from you right now. And we lose it. But my, what my daughter doesn't know, I'm like, if you just straight up drink this whole thing right now, you're going to be puking everywhere. Like, literally, it's all going to come out. I'm going to have stained clothes. You're not going to feel good. It's just going to be a complete mess. It's not good for you. I need to take it away right now so that it can be put back in its rightful place. And I think that's what God is, what Jonah is getting at in the story. It, when, when God says, he's saying, listen, I know you hurled, I know you hurled the waves. I know that you threw me into the sea. And I knew that if you didn't intervene in a significant way, this thing that I love, that is a good gift, that's actually killing me, like if you just let me go, it would just destroy me. And what God does is he intervenes because he loves you. And he says, not right now. And so listen, God in your life, I don't know what it is, and I think you gotta be even careful of like, I'm not saying God causes evil in your life, does evil, none of those things. I think there's a wisdom in applying this to our lives, but I do think that God in his kindness and his mercy, he throws you into the sea sometimes. He might hurl his waves at a relationship. He might allow you to get to a point where he says, I just gotta completely take it away now. Like I tried to warn you along the way, but like I love you so much, I gotta pull it from you. Or I gotta put you in this, this situation that will create distress because you won't cry out to me unless you realize how desperate you are. And I need you to feel how much you actually need me because that's the only way that you're gonna see it. Do you get what I'm saying? And those of you who have been through these circumstances, I'll just say it, they suck. Do they not? They hurt, they're painful, You'll have veins popping out of your head, tears crying down your face. You'll be reaching for the thing. And God goes, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make sure you're, you're healthy and whole and Christ is formed in you first. And so what Jonah says is, listen, God will, he will, he will, he will pursue you and love you and, and, he, and he will take what he needs to and he will give what he needs to in his own time and his own wisdom. So Jonah recognizes that in verse two. And then this is where, uh, I love this part of the story because this is where Jonah's actually heart begins to change. We see it in verses four through seven. He says this, so I was in distress. Lord, I know that you, Lord, you allowed the distress. You, you sent the waves. And then in verse four, he says, I said, I have been banished from your sight. So this is Jonah describing the lowest of lows. Like this is rock bottom in Jonah's life. He says, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, the seaweed was wrapped around my head like a seaweed turban, and to the roots of the mountains, I, one of you got that, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, 
brought my life up from the pit. Now, like, I want you to look back. This isn't, like, you could read this and be like, oh, that's cool, beautiful language. But think about this from your own experience. We all feel this way at some point in our lives where we go, we feel banished. Do you not feel banished from God's presence sometimes? Like, I just don't even feel him. I don't see him. I feel banished. Uh, and he says, the engulfing waters threaten me. Like, there's this outside environment that's, like, threatening me. It feels dangerous. The deep surrounded me. How, some, how, how many of you sometimes feel like you're drowning in life? You feel like you're surrounded by darkness. You may not actually have seaweed wrapped around your head, but like there's just like, you're, this picture, like you're wrapped in your circumstance. Like it's not just like around you, like it's like literally around your head. And then he says, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. There's no further down you can go than the roots of the mountains. It's his way of saying, listen, I'm like, I was down below the earth, dead. I feel, I feel it. I'm down in the bottom. And then he says, the earth barred me in forever. He's like, and it felt like a prison. Remember what I said, this feels ugly? These situations, the decisions we've made, all these things, they put us in places like this. But what I love about rock bottom, I'm telling you guys as a pastor, people that's like, they come to me like, yeah, my life's great. Like, most most of the time they're like lying or like we're just not ready for that conversation. But it's like, when I have somebody come and sit down with me or I sit down with somebody else and they're like, I am at absolute rock bottom. Like my life's a complete mess. And you know when you like sit across the table from somebody, you're like, there is literally nothing I can do about your life. Like it is so messy. Only God could do something, which is the beauty of, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, but when somebody comes to me and says, I'm at rock bottom, it's refreshing for me. Not because I love that they're in their situation, but because I know this is the turning point. It's like this is like this is where the transformation happens or or this is where it goes into worse and worse and worse. But it's a pivotal moment and so it is with Jonah. Did you notice his eyes and his mind are redirected when he's at rock bottom. Look in verse 4 he says what? Yet I will as I'm in my rock bottom he says I will what? Look. I will look toward your holy temple. The temple is, uh, was in Israel, and the significance of this is the, the Israelite temple. This was the temple of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, the creator God. And so when he's saying, I look towards your temple, what he's saying is, God, I'm looking towards your presence. I'm looking towards your presence. I'm looking to you. And Jews believe that when they prayed, their prayers like, kind of like went through the temple, believe it or not, like up into the throne room of God. And so he's saying, listen, I'm directing, my sight is on you, God. I'm at rock bottom, my sight is on you. And then in verse seven, man, tell me this is not true for some of us. When my life was ebbing away, I think of like deteriorating, what? I remembered. I remembered you. And he says, and my prayer rose to you. Here's the lesson here. Experiencing God's grace is dependent on where you look at the bottom. I want to say that one more time. Experiencing God's grace is dependent upon where you look at the bottom. And let me tell you, there are so many places you can look when you're at the bottom. But those who actually experience the transforming power of God in their lives, those who actually go, man, like I've actually encountered the living God in a way that I just did not realize I could, it's when their sights and when their eyes are fixated on God. Jonah's heart change begins with a sight change. You want a heart change in the situation that you're at, you need a sight change. And that sight has to be 
the one true living God. I want to make one other point here. It's not just about being at the bottom, but it's prayer at the bottom that unlocks a transforming encounter with God. I was thinking about this a lot. I know a lot of people, and I've been this I've been, I've been at, at this situation so many times in my life where I've been at the bottom. Now listen, there are times in your life where you're like, my whole life is at the bottom right now. Like, it's just like, it's, it's really bad. And then there are like moments where like something bad and it like puts you in the bottom, like puts you at the bottom for the day or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but it's it, like, it's prayer, it's, liter- it's prayer at the bottom that actually changes because prayer is the language of God. You can be at the bottom and literally like you can look to anything else you can, you, can, you can mope there, and that doesn't mean we can't grieve, but you can, just, you can just sit there. But those who actually, where you go like, man, what is like with you? Like in a good way, like what's in you? They go, I was at that place, and I looked to God and his temple. I looked to his presence, and I prayed to him. Now some of you listen to this, and you go, all right, well now I'm gonna have to like come up with five, like some of you are like, I can't even fill five minutes with prayer, you know? You sit down to pray, you're like, I went through my list in 20 seconds, and that's all I got. If you, if you came into my room, or where I have time with the Lord, I'm telling you, 20% of the time, I'm actually saying something with my mouth, and 80% of the time, I'm just sitting there. And I'm just sitting with God, and I'm like, all right, Lord. And literally, they're just questions like, what are you doing? It's like, Lord, I need you. But this is what we do. We get frustrated that we can't pray or that we can't pray well enough. So we try to do it religiously, meaning we try to like be eloquent with our words. And then we just end up babbling. We're like, I don't even know what I'm saying at this point. You know, and we just kind of sit in this place and we pray and, we like, uh, and then we just get frustrated and we quit. And what I, one of my favorite teachings about Jesus is in Matthew 6, he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans because they think they will be heard by God for their many words. He goes, but I tell you, you serve a father that knows what you need, so let your words be few, because he already knows what you need. So I think Jesus gives us permission to go like, I'm just gonna sit here with you. I'm gonna sit in your presence in my prayer. Prayer at the bottom looks like sitting with you here at the bottom and just saying, God, help me. It's beautiful, isn't it? Some of you think that? All right. <clears throat> So Jonah's heart shift begins with a sight shift. And then we're going to go on to verses 2, uh, 8 through 9. And this is where we see, it's so interesting, Jonah, Jonah here moves from like distress to like a, transfer, like a transition and transformation in his heart. And then he leads to worship. But what we see actually is that his worship is cluttered. But first let's see what his worship consists of. In verses uh, 8 through 9 he says this. He goes, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And then this is like one of the most popular verses in the whole Bible. Jonah makes this confession. He goes, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And so he sits there. He, he looks on his distress. He sees what God's doing in his life. And then he's sitting in the fish and he goes, rescue and salvation that belongs to God. Now here's what's amazing about this verse. That's not just like a coffee mug verse. You know, it's like, isn't that nice? Like salvation belongs to the Lord. But what Jonah's saying is, he's, listen, there is not, like literally there's nothing else in your life that can provide rescue but Jesus. 
There is nothing else in your life that can truly rescue you except God. And here's the thing. We, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, we look at that and we go, we have, we have a fill in the blank. Salvation comes from, do we not? When you're at the bottom, when you're at, the, when you're at rock bottom, when you're at your low point, whatever you look to for comfort, for affection, for safety, for rest, whatever you turn to, whether you recognize it or not, that's what the life that our confession actually is showing. It might, be, we might, it might say it like this, we never say this, but we live this way. Salvation comes from being in that relationship that I always wanted to be in. Like, man, if I just had that relationship, that's when I would have, be rescued from this feeling that I'm in. Salvation comes from, you know, when I have a paycheck that pays me this much, when I have this job, or like, you could just go on and on and on and on. And what, what Jonah is saying, and what I love about this is, Jonah is saying, this isn't just a confession, but this is actually an invitation from God to turn from the little saviors that we look to to the actual savior that can actually do something about this. I was, I was thinking about this a lot the other day. And um, I, was, I was really just, I was examining the places that I turned to in distress. And this is what I've realized about my own self, and maybe you can relate. Um, when you turn to your little savior, whatever you look to to rescue you from the situation that you're in, it always ends up enslaving you. So the little savior that you look to ends up to a big enslaver, and then it just creates the cycle of slavery, does it not? What you're looking to for salvation actually ends up becoming your master, and whatever you're mastered by enslaves you. And what Jesus is saying is like, when salvation belongs to God, he's saying, listen, the rescue you're looking for in whatever situation may not have the circumstance that you're looking for, but it always has the life that you're looking for, and it's in Jesus. And salvation belongs to God alone. Now, I said here, so Jonah's worshiping. He's like, he's like man, salvation comes from the Lord. It's beautiful. Um, but what's very subtle, and we'll actually see in the rest of the Jonah story, is that Jonah's heart is actually, it's, it's cluttered worship. It's not pure worship. Because there's still self-righteousness in his heart. Did you, did you catch it? Look again. I want to I re, reread this and emphasize some words. He says, in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. Who are the those people? He's still talking about Nineveh. He's in the bottom, at rock bottom, and even in his prayer of repentance and transformation and his heart, he still sees those people, and this is how you know he's talking about other people and not just a personal testimony. He says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. So it's like, come on, Jonah. Like, you're, you're literally in a fish like, you're about to die because you're running away from God. And in the fish, in his repentance, he still has a sense of those people. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, where, oh, salvation comes from the, you know what I'm saying? So Jonah's heart here, it, it, it's cluttered, and it's really, it's really, um, the best way I describe it is it's a toxic self-righteousness that it has not been, like, removed from his life yet. And we have this too. I was thinking about this. And here's why self-righteousness is sneaky. When we're at our lowest of lows, and especially when it's because of a decision we made, we love to have other people that are making terrible decisions so that our decision doesn't seem as bad as it is before. So have you ever been in a moment where you're like, God, please forgive me? And oh yeah, I remember when Abel did that. 
Lord Jesus, help him, have mercy. But I, I'm here repenting, Lord, and Abel is still gossiping. Like, what is, you know, but we do this in our own subtle, and it's dark, honestly. It's really dark, and it's, and it's filled with an inflated view of the self, and it's really self-protection because you're trying to protect your own heart. And what Jonah, what Jonah is uh, realizing, actually, I don't think he's realizing it, what Jonah will see is that the self-righteousness in his heart has been diminished but not destroyed. So it's creating a worship that's cluttered and not truly authentic. Here's the point I want to make this, make about this. Worship mixed with self-righteousness is not pure worship. Worship mixed with self-righteousness, this I'm better than you mentality, is not pure worship. God doesn't go, I'm like, that's so beautiful, thank you so much. I think God is gracious and kind, and he, even in the story, he doesn't interject, like, Jonah, you know, by the way, he's gonna be like, okay, Jonah, like, I take it, I receive it, you know, he extends grace, and the rest of the story, God's gonna be on a mission to uproot this out of his heart and to show him. I was thinking, um, I've been trying to, one of the great things about preaching is when you, like, start to study something, you start to realize, like, Literally every single time, I'm like, God, I, I feel like I'm not self-righteous right now. Like, I feel like I'm in the season where I'm like, I really feel like, you know, I have an accurate view of myself and other people. God's like, oh, that's so great. I mean, have you seen this room in your heart before? And I was like, no, but you shouldn't show it to me. <laughs> and uh, no, so I've just been like really like evaluating myself. And I've literally been doing the same thing where in my repentance and prayer, I just, my heart, I don't even think about it. Like what comes up is like, I'll just, that person who hurt me, It'll come up with that, that person like, man, they're just, they, that, them. And I've been trying to pay attention to the self-righteousness, not only in my heart, but like in the church and family gatherings. And it's, guys, let's just be honest, it's not just out in culture. Obviously, there's political news and there's like, you know, pretty much political news is like just taking grenades and just chucking it at one another because they suck and we're great and, you know, don't you believe that we're awesome and, you're stupid if you, you know, like there's that game out in the world and that's totally there, it's evil, it's not of God. But we just gotta recognize that there's a, there's a superiority complex in our hearts. Like it's actually there. I was with Kendrick and I don't know if I'm allowed to say, no, I was at Fox Cigar Bar. Forgive me if you're against cigars. But I was, I was studying for this message, so there we go. But there, is a, there was a lady that came up to us, and there was this guy. Honestly, he's kind of different. He's sitting right next to us. He, I don't know. I don't know his story. I don't know anything. But literally, this lady came up to us and was like, do you know this guy right here? I was like, yeah. I, yeah. I won't say his name. And uh, I was like, yeah, I've had a couple conversations with him. And she's like, isn't he weird? And I was like, I was like, I, it was so like abrupt that I was like, uh, I, like, I don't, I, and Kendrick's like, I actually kind of like him. And, uh, and I was sitting there and I was literally so shocked. It, it was so simple, but I was like, man, there's just something in the human heart that just wants to like condemn, point fingers, all this stuff, you know, it, and I just want to ask you, who are your those people? It may be a person that you're like that person. It may be a group of people, those people, but I just want to gently challenge you. If you ever have a those people category in your heart and you feel this above them, God goes, I hate that. 
Because my grace goes so deep for you, deeper than you even realize. And when you compare yourself as above somebody else, and you start like puffing your chest over them, slamming them, gossiping, slandering, God goes, what you're telling me by your actions is that you don't need as much grace as them. And God in this story is like, I'm after everybody. And when you have a those people, people, what you do is you draw a line, you sit above it, and you look like this. And then God, in our repentance, we go like, Lord, they, but I with grateful praise. Oh, you know? And I think we just gotta name that in our hearts. I think we gotta name that in our hearts. That our worship can sometimes be cluttered and say like, Lord Jesus, rid me of the self-righteousness. Help me to see myself as I actually am in need of grace. I was dead in the grave. They are too. And God loves your enemy. We're gonna see that as the story unfolds. But here, we need to land this plane because we got sleep to get to. But in Jonah chapter two, uh, verse 10, I think it's very interesting. It says, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Isn't that just a beautiful picture? Like if you just picture that, like, like Jonah, he's vomited onto dry land. And I was always curious, I'm like, why does the scripture say that like Jonah was vomited onto the dry land? Why couldn't it say like, I don't know, like he just spit him out or, but this is, what, this is what I think is going on. I think it's God's way of saying that there's still something gross in Jonah's heart that needs to be dealt with. There's still this self-righteousness and this picture of the fish vomiting Jonah out isn't saying that God's rejected Jonah, but saying there's something gross in your heart still and I still need to deal with it. And so that's what we're gonna see uh, next week and the week after as we wrap up Jonah is that God, uh, he receives uh, our praise absolutely, like that he loves us, that he's gracious, but he is committed to uprooting this kind of hidden lack of love, uh, self-righteousness in our heart. And so as I end, I wanna put, I wanna put this before you because I know some of you are coming, you're sitting in a mess, you're, you're in distress, you're frustrated, you have a lot of questions, and you're like, where is God? And um, <clears throat> I just wanna read to you this verse and then make a comment, and then we'll worship. Psalm 34, 17 through 18 says this. And I just wanna put it before you, and I just want you to, just to hear it. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. It doesn't say when they obey. It doesn't say when they get their act together, then he'll start to hear. When does God hear you according to the verse? You can say it. When we cry to him for help. And it says he rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. If I wanna leave one thing with you tonight, it's this. There's a difference, have you ever had, realized there's a difference between those that understand God's grace as a concept versus those who actually experience God's grace? You ever go, like, wh- like, why is it different for each people? Is it just like personality wiring? Like, we know, it's like, they've experienced God's grace. And eh, I'm not sure about that. It's those who have actually encountered God at the bottom. And so I just wanna offer to you, wherever you are at the bottom, at the lowest of lows, If you want to encounter God's grace and be transformed, you can only do one thing. It's call to him for help. No pastoral wisdom can get you out of it. No, like, you can't, like, rescue is not in another person. God uses other people, but he wants you in your situation just to say, God, I need you.
and then you sit with him there and you wait on him because he loves you and the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and God, we thank you that you hear us and Lord, that you don't abandon us in our mess and Lord, I I pray that in our distress and in our uncomfortableness, Lord, that uh, we wouldn't turn away from it but we'd actually lean into it, Lord, so that we would encounter you through it and so, Lord, I don't know what everybody's going through. Uh, Lord, I don't know the broken stories. I don't know the wants and the desires. Life is complicated, and Lord, you see it all. And so, God, we're just asking for your grace. We're asking for your mercy. Uh, Lord, and we pray this all in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. The band's going to sing in a second, but I actually want to just give you, I just want to give you like a minute or two that Jonathan, when you feel time, you can lead out. But I just want you to sit in the broken with Jesus. And so maybe your brokenness is, I don't feel broken. I feel pretty good right now. And your prayer is like, Jesus, show me the parts of my hearts that are broken that I need to bring to you. Some of you know exactly what you're walking through right now and the mess that you're sitting in. And I just want you to talk about it with Jesus. Before we sing, before we do all these things, I just want you to take some time, sit, and know that the Lord hears you when you cry out to him, and that he's close to the brokenhearted, and that he will rescue his people because he's committed to your good, and that he loves you. And so let's take a few minutes, and then we'll close our night in worship. Mm -hmm.